All right, so quick class today. We, we're still moving along on the Zealots. This will be Sea of Galilee part 16, so we're on 16 in a row. We've been spending the last few weeks talking about the Zealots and how important that, how prominent that movement was. We don't always have that context. We lack context of the Zealots because in our first century, or I'm sorry, in the 21st century, we don't have any understanding of that movement. And then second, the Bible downplays everyone as a zealot. They don't want you to think, because when those guys are writing in the first century in Rome, they don't want the Romans to think that the Christians are zealots, because the zealots have created a huge mess. And we'll talk next week, what caused the war finally in 66 AD was the zealots. We're just looking at the zealot movement, and it applies today because the, the, the mentality, the thing that leads to zealous-like behavior exists everywhere in humanity. It's just a human condition, and you don't have to be religious. You can be a zealot about something. Any ideology, you can become a zealot. So we all have to be mindful that violence can break out, even amongst people who don't intend to have violence. Okay, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at Paul. And we're going to talk about the background of Paul, and what I want to do is talk about Paul through the lens of the zealots. It takes his actions and raises them up, just like we did last week with the disciples. He kind of exposes them to say, how was Paul's thinking zealot-like? He tells us he, he's zealot-like thinking. He's persecuting the church. And I put Paul's Hebrew given name, Shaul. We say Saul, but it's Shaul. I do that for a reason, because... We have to remember, he's born a Jew. He's never left Judaism. He never intended, I don't think, to create a whole new religion. He's trying to reform his Jews, have them see Jesus as the Messiah. It reformed Judaism in a way to say, look, you guys, are, we're, we're, missing the, we're missing the point here. But throughout history, though, we've divided. So Judeo-Christian values are because we share something together. So it's just a way to remember his background, and we'll talk about Paul's parents. And when we get to the end, the very end, your eyebrow might raise a little bit, like, hmm, what, what about his parents may have caused Paul to be a little bit more zealous than maybe we think? Shaul, and that is, of course, the first king of Israel. We say Saul, King Saul, King Shaul. And you'll see today, Paul's going to tell you, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. That's where the first king was from. Saul is from, Shaul is from the tribe of Benjamin. Paul's very proud of that. And he's going to constantly remind his people that, you know, hey, I, I share the king's name. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. We're a scrappy bunch down there in, in Benjamin. Uh, the reason I want to use this background picture here, sorry. This picture is, of course, that is the Western Wall in Jerusalem. So what's lit up is the Western Wall. That's on, that's on a Sabbath. It's, it's Friday at about 6 o'clock, and it's like a party. I mean, if, you, if church was like that, we'd all go to church every single week, and it would be a blast. Singing and dancing and cheering and praying. And it's, you can't believe people are so excited the Sabbath is here. It's a, I mean, it gives me chills. Just It's amazing to see the joy of the Sabbath showing up. 
So that's the Western Wall. Now, in Jesus' day, God's house stood right where that mosque is today. So what I'm going to do is talk about a, something that happened, an interaction that Paul had, and the interaction happens right up there on that Temple Mount. So that's my background picture of choice. But that's where God's house was. And maybe God willing, one day we'll do a class on some of the dynamics of that temple or the Temple Mount. All right, so that's the Western Wall in Jerusalem. So Paul's background, Shaul, as we'll call him. Now, you can, you can turn, if you want, into Galatians uh, 1, 13 to 14, because what Paul has to do as he's writing his letters, he's talking to fellow Jews, and he's going to continually remind his fellow Jews all of his, I have a slide later, all of his bona fides. This is what makes me credible. So Galatians 1, 13 to 14. So this is what Paul is going to tell them. He's going to remind them, look, I'm a fellow Jew, right? For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how I intensely persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Now, after three weeks of talking about zealots, does that sound like zealous behavior to try to destroy the church? Yeah. Now it's like, oh, that's what he's doing. It's violence against a group because of the ideology that he holds. So, verse 14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So, he's way advanced. He's a smart guy. He's, we'll see later. He's studying with one of the leading teachers in Jerusalem. And finally, I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. Yeah, he's zealous. And when he sees people who he thinks are violating those precepts, he's going to get angry and go after them. He's not adopting a mentality of nonviolence. And there will be other, others that do, and so we'll, we'll read about that. In fact, Paul's rabbi adopts an attitude of nonviolence, and Paul doesn't. So, so just like uh, last week I showed you this slot, we said, look, how can we build that context out, right? We looked at the zealots, we've looked at their biblical heroes, the historical movements like the Maccabees, the, the holiday of Hanukkah, and then recent history. Last week we talked about how, you know, there were people still living who had been persecuted by Herod and the Romans. And that foments all of this anger and the revolutionary type mentality. So last week we talked disciples, but this week we're going to stick Paul in that thing and say, well, how, how can we view Paul through the lens of zealot? And here's the important part. That recent history, we have a comment from an ancient writer named Jerome about Paul's parents. Now, we don't know if it's absolutely true, but if it's even remotely true, it'll raise your eyes, eyebrow to say, uh-huh. And it's, a, it's about an event in recent history. So, that's what we'll finish with. Okay, so again, Paul's bona fides. Well, we just looked at um, the one from Galatians. I'm going to read this one real quick from Philippians. We've done this one before. Paul is talking about having confidence in who you are, in your citizenship. And he says, though I myself have reason for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have a reason to put confidence in the if flesh, I have more. And now he's going to start listing every reason why he should have more confidence about this. Circumcised on the eighth day 
What does that mean to a Jew? Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. Whose covenant are you under? The Abrahamic covenant, and you have a mark on your skin to show it. Hey, I was circumcised on the eighth day, which means I'm in the covenant of Abraham. I'm of the people of Israel, he keeps going. So I'm through the line of Jacob, who got named Israel. I'm in the tribe of Benjamin. So he's proud of that. My name is Shaul from the tribe of Benjamin, just like the first king. And that tribe of Benjamin is a scrappy bunch. In Genesis, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. And so many people look at Paul as being the ravenous wolf of Benjamin. There's some interesting geography. If you check, if you ever study the tribal nature, uh, Benjamin is a little strip of land, very skinny, runs from Jericho over the mountains uh, to the other, to, to the uh, plain in Israel. Real, real skinny strip of land. To the north, big brother Ephraim. Big, strong, powerful Ephraim. To the south, big brother Judah. And little brother Benjamin is stuck between two warring brothers. And the importance of Benjamin is that it's the, it's the highway. You have to own the highway to own the, the trade. You want to get to the Mediterranean? You better control the tribe of Benjamin. So Ephraim would push south. And then Judah would push north. And Ephraim would push south. And Judah would push north. And it would go back and forth. So Benjamin is constantly in a battle for uh, that territory. Isaiah says, chapter 11, Messianic chapter, how do we know the Messiah is here? Ephraim and Judah will get along. They'll stop fighting with each other. So, tribe of Benjamin, scrappy bunch, they became fierce warriors. Okay, Paul says, look, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning I'm full-on Hebrew. I'm no Greek. Just because I'm out here in Galatia, or where is he? Philippi. In regard to the law of Pharisee. So he sees himself as through the Pharisee line. He believes in a resurrection. He believes in an afterlife that includes rewards and punishment. Remember the Sadducees said, no, you go, you die, that's it. All justice is meted out in this world. Pharisees said, no way. God is just. You keep going, and that means there's punishment in the afterlife if you've done wrong. Okay, and then you get to verse 6. As for zeal persecuting the church. There he is. He tells it again. In my zeal, I was persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Now, he's not saying he's sinless there. He's saying, I went to confession three times a week. All of my sins, I confessed it to the priest. I did the proper, I followed the rules of the Torah. In fact, he thought he was following a rule by persecuting the church. I'll show you that later. He's, he's got justification for putting people to death from his Bible. Paul does this over and over again because he's saying, look, I'm not who you think I am. All right, so Paul from the Bible, let's, there, there are what we know of him, and we'll see this. These are his own words. He says, I was born in Tarsus. And don't turn there. We'll, we'll be there in a minute to show you. Tarsus is in Turkey. It's in uh, Cilicia. Paul says, look, look, I was born in Tarsus. The question is, how did his parents get to Tarsus? Okay, that's what we want to end with. B, his Roman citizenship. Now, this one, scholars say, well, how did he get his Roman citizenship? 
but he has Roman citizenship that he uses to his, his advantage. He was raised in Jerusalem, so he's not, uh, he's not living a Greek life playing soccer and, you know, at the gymnasium. He went over to study. In fact, he's, he studies under a rabbi named Gamliel. And Gamliel was one of the famous rabbis of the first century. He comes through a line of rabbis. Uh, his grandfather was called Hillel. And if you go to any university, if you drive, drive down the street here to San Diego State, there's a Hillel Center for Jewish Studies at San Diego State. There's one at UCSD. There's a Hillel everywhere at every campus in America. And Gamliel was Hillel's grandson, and Hillel was nonviolent. Hey, God took care of the Egyptians. God will take care of the Romans. It's not your job to go out and try to attack them. There was another rabbi named Shammai who was much more in, on the fierce side. He's stricter, and his followers may have tended towards the zealotry. Okay, so this is what Paul's going to tell us, meaning, and again, I know I'm going to reiterate this, he's not a Greek. You know, throughout church history, we've often made Paul a Greek. And now everyone's trying to go back and rewrite that to say, no, he's not as Greek as you thought he was. Okay, so this is Paul that we're going to learn from the Bible, and Gamaliel becomes one of the important pieces there. So now what I want to do is turn in your Bible to Acts 21, and we're going to read, it's Acts 21:37. then it goes into chapter 22 through verse 5, and these are going to be Paul's words. It's going to reiterate everything I just showed you there. Where he's from, hey folks, don't get confused, you know who I am, I grew up in this city. And what I want you to see is there's some uh, history going on, so I'll explain that. Here's the context. The context is Paul had gone back to Jerusalem for a holiday. Apparently, he had some of the Greek followers with him, at least in the city of Jerusalem. And now he goes up to the temple. The folks on the temple, presumably zealots, are going to accuse him of taking one of the foreigners inside the temple. Now, what's the big deal? Here's the big deal. They installed a barrier to God. What does Isaiah say? This is a house for all nations. That's the vision in Isaiah. All the foreigners are welcome at this house. And what do you do? You place a barrier that says, no, you're not. These are our rules. We're not going to let you in. So I'm going to show you a picture in a minute. This temple mount is, is a new, at, at, in Jesus' day, that's new construction. The temple was in Jerusalem, but Herod flattened out the city, flattened out this big area, took all the stones, built up a giant platform, and so that the temple sat now on this huge enclosure, religious enclosure. That's relatively new. Herod started that 25 years before Jesus' birth or so. Now, you can imagine the committee meetings. Think about just remodeling your house, right? What are the discussions when you're simply trying to pick out paint color? 
And then think of putting that into a committee to restructure God's house and how everybody's justifying their reason for doing what because God wants it that way. And I'm sure, you know, you could imagine it would be awful. Well, at some point they said, uh, you know what, we're going to keep the foreigners out of God's house. And they put up a wall. And so there's a little barrier that they found that went around God's house. And then there's these signs. And let me put, this is from the Israel Museum. And you can't read that, but somebody online later will be able to look at it closer. But they found these signs around the the temple. And it says basically, uh, no foreigner shall come past this or go, go past a certain point. So no foreigners allowed. And then it says, uh, and by the way, if you go past this, you take responsibility for your own death. Let me, let me, I'm going to read it to you exactly how it says it on here. It says, whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. That's what the sign says. Get that? Go past this wall and you die. Now, does God like it when you put barriers in front of people getting to him? Nope. One of the problems, and I, you know, we have to be really careful when I say this, it's a human problem. The moment you have an ideology or the moment you have a religion or anything, you will create a barrier. Those people are out, we're in. Now, because we're limited, we can't think like God can, and we always have to put a structure around our limitation. It happens to people who are religious. It happens to people who are not religious. And here's what they did. They said, oh, you can't get to God's house if you're a foreigner. God doesn't like that. Look at Jesus' whole ministry. I'm going to cross every boundary you've put up, and I'm going to pull those people into God's house. And they crucify him for it. So you can even see this. It's interesting non-religious college campuses. The campus becomes like a sanctuary. The wrong person goes on the campus, get out, you know. There's a, there's a book called The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt and maybe Greg Lukanoff. I'm not sure if he was part of that, but good book because it talks about how everybody kind of creates these sanctuaries. Something unclean comes in, we have to kick you out. It's just the way human beings are. So it's something we have to pay attention to, but This is what they're accused. This is why they're so upset. If Paul took a foreigner into that temple, that's the sign that says, now you're going to die. So this is why I I just want to show you, they're not just upset because they're crazy. Although it might have been crazy to do that. All right, so let's start. uh, Verse 37. So the people are throwing a fit because they think Paul has taken a foreigner into God's house. The soldiers are called in because they got to keep the riot down. So it says, as the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Now, he's speaking the commander's language. Paul knows Greek. Do you speak Greek, he replied. Paul's like, yep. Now, look, look at this next question the guy's going to ask him. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt? Now, who's the Egyptian? So, You have Jews from Alexandria, Egypt. There had been a a Jew from Alexandria that was claiming to be the Messiah. He led a band of people over to the Mount of Olives. This is in Josephus. 
He said, when I blow the trumpet or I pray, whatever, the, fa- the walls of Jerusalem are going to fall. He claimed to be a prophet, just like Jericho's walls fall. Well, that didn't happen. They killed him. And what happened to his followers? They all, you know, ran into the desert. So this is a real life occurrence. He's saying, aren't you that Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? So he's confusing now, the guards confusing Paul. Now, this is the NIV. How many people have a different word than terrorist who led a band of assassins? Cutthroats. What do you cut a throat with? What do you cut a throat with? A little knife. See, that, I read my NIV and I go, come on, people. Terrorist gives you a different conception. It's an assassin. It's also a cutthroat. That's very accurate. You know why? Remember what we talked about last week? What was Peter doing with the little knife? There was a group called the Sicarii. And that word right here for terrorist is this word, Sicarios, from Sicarii. Aren't you, the Sicar- aren't you one of the Sicarii, the assassins who carry those little knives and, and stab people and cut off ears? So it's assassin, right? Then you get assassin, murderer, bandit. One of the Sicarii, notice that on the slide. Terrorist is not in there. And then if you look at the word origin, it's Latin for a dagger. That's that little knife. So I just want to point out, So important to check other translations. If you have the ability, go in, look at the Greek behind it. And I would have preferred that they had just said, aren't you one of the Sicarii? Because what would that cause all of us to do? We'd go look it up. Or we would say, pastor, what's a Sicarii? And now the pastor has to go to work and tell you the whole history of the zealots and the Sicarii. It would be better than terrorists because you read terrorists and you just keep going and you don't think about what they're actually saying. So, okay. Yeah, to only think the NIV is only the one that uses terrorists, which they were terrorists, but that doesn't, you get my point. It's the sickery. That's cool. That's what we did last week. All right, let's keep going because I'm running way behind. So Paul answered, look, no, I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. So now he's asking the guard, look, let me talk to these folks out here that are getting all upset. They think he's desecrating the temple. The guard thinks he's an Egyptian Sicarii, uh, a Jew from Egypt that's part of the Sicarii. Okay, so now Paul's going to talk to the crowd. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Hebrew, eh, that's two strikes on the NIV today. Sorry. For all of the NIV folks. Who has has Hebrew in their Bible? Yeah, a whole bunch of people. It says here Aramaic, right? That's the NIV committee interpreting for you. They're telling you, well, we don't think it was Hebrew. We think it was Aramaic. But see this little footnote right here. Anytime you see a footnote, read it. Possibly Hebrew. And what I did on your handout, I did this for the handout. So if you look on your handout, I put the Greek word, and it is not anywhere near Aramaic. In Greek, it's Hebrew. So what language is Paul speaking to them in? 
Hebrew. Now, did they speak Aramaic? Yes. But remember, Paul's a Torah student of Gamaliel. He, he's, yeah, he's reading scripture, and it's likely, if he's that zealous, he's going to read it in Hebrew, not Aramaic version of scripture. So I just want you to notice, all of everything he's doing, all of his actions are telling you, he's not a Greek. Those Greeks wouldn't know how to speak Hebrew to the crowd. And look at the, how the crowd responds. Brothers and fathers, listen to my defense. Now, he says that in Hebrew. When the crowd he heard them speak in Hebrew, not Aramaic, they suddenly paid attention. Because no Jewish-speaking person, or I'm sorry, no Greek-speaking person who only knows Greek is going to be able to speak fluent Hebrew to them. So, anyways, then Paul says this. He says, okay, uh, this is verse 3 now, chapter 22. I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. This city meaning Jerusalem. Hey, you guys know who I am. Yeah, I might have been born out there, but I was brought up here. I studied under Gamaliel. Gamaliel, some people say Gamaliel. I guess it's potato, potato, but it's Gamaliel. So I studied under Gamaliel, and I was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. And now he's going to say, look, I see your zealousness, because I was just, oh, there's trained as our ancestors, I was just as zealous for God as you are today. He knows everything about them and what their actions are. Now the crowd at least is responding to Paul because now Paul's going to go on. He's going to tell him his whole story, how he was walking to Damascus and persecuting the church and all of that. Let me see what I've got next here. Oh, okay. Verse 4. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death. Now, two notes. First of all, what's the way? It's the earliest name for that movement. There's still a sect of Judaism. Just like Pharisees is a sect of Judaism, Essenes is a sect of Judaism, Nazarenes are a sect of Judaism. These are the way. The way is a sect within Judaism. So that's their original name. Now later, they become known as Christians. But And then Paul says, I am going to put them to death. Where does he get his justification for putting, that, putting someone to death? Okay. So where does Paul get all of his justification? The old, from the Torah. He's going to follow the Torah. Do, now, don't look it up. I'm just going to tell you and put it for, the video, for those on the video. You can go look at it later. Deuteronomy 13, starting at verse 6. If you have a loved one, a brother, a sister, a wife whom you love, and they entice you to follow a different God, away from the God that we know, put them to death. Now, is Jesus a God that you don't know? Well, possibly to them. It's so different. If you're calling Jesus divine, suddenly you're now creating a false idol. So they have a justification from their Old Testament. That's going to say, God, what, now here's, let me just give you real quick. God makes a covenant, right? Just like a, 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 kings will make a covenant 
if you violate the covenant, if you, tr- if you become a traitor against a covenant, what's the penalty? Death. So that's, part, that's the context of Deuteronomy. If you become a treason, do tr- something treasonous to the United States, what's the penalty? Per the law, death. We have a death penalty for treason. Now, doesn't mean everyone's going to get it, but that's the point. I want you to know he's pulling it from their Bible. That's, that's the whole idea. Okay. Arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. Verse 5. He had all the permission from the high priest, so he must have held a certain authority within this group. The high priest and all the council can testify for themselves. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to stand trial and see if they're guilty, right? No, we brought them to Jerusalem simply to be punished. So this is Paul's actions. Again, all I want you to do is see he's got a particular mindset. Jesus is going to yank him out of that mindset but he's going to use that energy because he's got to go take on the Caesar. Paul, I'm going to send you to the Caesar. I need someone who's got enough energy and passion to go across the sea and get beat up the whole way, but not stop. And that's Paul. All right, so <laughs> that was a lot. Sorry. Here we, okay, here we go. One little point about this, because we're, we're going to talk Gamaliel next. Gamaliel is, the, is the, te- the teacher, the rabbi. One huge distinction between East and West is the difference between teacher and rabbi. Teacher, student, rabbi, disciple. Totally different mentality. Okay, so we're in the West. We always think teacher. Rabbi Gamaliel is the, is the rabbi, so we'll call him Rabbi Gamaliel. Paul is the disciple. Now, in the West, we have teachers, teacher and student. A student wants to know what the teacher knows, and perhaps maybe they don't even want to know that. They just want to know enough to pass the test so I can move on and get my degree and go do something, whatever. But that's it. A student wants to know what the teacher knows. It's about knowing knowledge. I got information so I can go off and do whatever. That's radically different than a rabbi, rabbi-disciple relationship. The rabbi-disciple relationship, the disciple wants to be what the rabbi is. So when you take on Jesus as your rabbi, what are you saying? I want to know all the theological doctrines so I can get to heaven? No. You want to be Christ-like. You want to be just like Jesus in every action. Everything that you do, how you walk in life, it's about being, it's a way of being, not knowing something. And we are, we're so intellectual, we turn that into, you got to know the right doctrine, and if you don't, you know, you're, so it's just, now, here's the question though, was Paul like his rabbi? If Gamaliel is going to, if Gamaliel is going to say nonviolence, what was Paul doing? The exact opposite. He was not like his rabbi. And then he meets Jesus, and he suddenly has to go off and become like his new rabbi. He has to take on the new yoke of how do I understand Torah from Jesus now. And he becomes just like Jesus, everything he does. Okay. It's a very important thing. As we're, we're about to look at Gamaliel, but it's important to note that there's a big difference between East and West. Teacher, student, rabbi, disciple. All right. 
So let's talk Gamaliel, and this will be, we'll, we'll do Gamaliel, then we'll, we'll look at uh, Paul's parents, and that'll be it. So Gamaliel, as I mentioned, he's, he comes from the, from the line, uh, or what's called the school of Hillel, Bet Hillel. The school of Hillel is his grandfather, his, yeah, his grandfather, and Hillel was nonviolence. Jesus agrees with Hillel 95% of the time. Only once does he agree with Shammai, that's divorce. Hillel was more lenient on divorce. Um, Gamaliel teaches nonviolence, and as I'll show you in a minute, he's going to defend the disciples. Very important to note, a Pharisee defending the disciples, and it's one of the most amazing pieces of wisdom that you'll read in the Bible. So he's acting out of wisdom. Wisdom is about your actions. It's not, I got a belief. It's, how do I act so that the future comes out the most appropriate way? This is what we lack today. If I have an opinion, I voice it on 25 different social media platforms. And then a year later, when that opinion gets blown up, I'm just now ashamed and angry because I didn't stop to think. I didn't, I didn't use wisdom to voice my opinion or act. I went with my emotions. That's, this is what we do today. So it's, it's a brilliant piece of text. So let's go look at what Gamaliel says. It's in Acts 5. So we're still in the book of Acts. Gamaliel is going to defend the disciples in front of the Sanhedrin. When we look at the context of this story, this is shortly after the death of Jesus, or within a few years, I you suppose. Jesus was seen as a leader of a movement. They accused him of being like a revolutionary, and he has a group of disciples. So what Gamaliel is going to do is give him a history lesson on other people who showed up as revolutionaries that led a group that once they died, the group fell apart. So they see this as a, this movement. Now the disciples are out preaching and doing miracles in Jesus' name, and it's driving the religious leaders nuts. So they want to bring them in and put them to death. So they had brought the disciples in to persecute them. And verse 33 says this, when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. What they, they is the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders. So that's the Sanhedrin. We'll get there in a minute. Peter says, hey, we don't have a choice. We're going to speak God's name. We can't do anything about it. That's your problem. And of course, the religious leaders get upset. So when they, the, the Sanhedrin, heard this, they were furious. They wanted to put the disciples to death. But a Pharisee, remember, not all Pharisees are bad. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He helps out. The Pharisees help Jesus uh, by telling him, hey, Herod's looking out for you, or Herod's uh, trying to come after you. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by our teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put, out for, put outside for a little while. So he clears the disciples out, and now he's going to give his fellow folks uh, a history lesson. Verse 35, then he addressed the Sanhedrin, men of Israel. By the way, the court, the Sanhedrin, what is attached to the, to the temple there. So they're on the Temple Mount, right, right behind on the, the picture behind the screen, they're on the Temple Mount. Men of Israel, and here's where, this is where wisdom begins, right here. Consider carefully. 
The moment you stop and start to think something through with as many angles as possible, using principles in your thinking, not going off of emotion, they're angry, they just want to kill them, consider carefully. Today, we have a whole group of people who don't consider carefully anything. They just say whatever is emotionally happening. Consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Because if you get it wrong, you're going to be held responsible. That's the point of acting with wisdom. So, verse 36. Now the the history lesson is going to begin. He's going to talk about different revolutionary movements and their leader. Some time ago, Theudas appeared, claiming to be somebody. About 400 men rallied to him. He was killed and his followers were dispersed. It all came to nothing. And the whole point is this. If Jesus died and there was nothing to his movement, then what's going to happen to his followers? They're just going to go away. So let him let go, right? That's what he's going to say. Verse 37. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census. Remember him from a few weeks ago? Judas the Galilean. He's from Gamla. He's the zealot leader from Gamla. In fact, Josephus says the zealot movement really started with Judas the Galilean. He led a band of people in revolt. He was killed and his followers were scattered. So there's two times where once the leader was gone, the followers just fell away. So now comes the the wisdom. Therefore, in this present case, I advise you, verse 38, leave these men alone. Let them go. This is so genius. It's one of the most amazing lines of the Bible. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. Right? Hey, look, if this is not a God movement, it's going to fall apart. But what if it is a God movement? Next verse, but if it's from God and you start fighting it, you won't be able to stop it. You will only find yourself fighting against God. Did their movement stop? Nope. That's why we're here today. This is wisdom. Look, folks, let them go. Now, if they're doing something illegal, stop the illegal action. But if they're just acting in a way that you don't like, God's going to take care of it. If it's God behind it, watch out because you're fighting, you'll be, end up fighting God. You don't want to fight God. Let it play out. See what's going to happen. It's, it's brilliant. So, okay, we have to finish up. I'm looking at the time. The whole point is that's Paul's teacher, right? Was Paul following Gamaliel? No, he was not following that wisdom. He was acting emotionally, he was angry, and he's persecuting. Okay, now Paul's roots. This one will go much faster. Where does Paul come from? So, the first thing is, let me show you one city. It's in Galilee. It's a city called Gishala, or Gish Halev, which kind of means a lump of milk. Like cheese, yes. So they think it's because, possibly because of the, ca- the, the cattle or the, the sheep that they would make um, cheese in that area. Gishala, it's up in Galilee. 
Let me show you real quick on a map. Here's, you can see the Sea of Galilee there on the right side of the screen. There's Capernaum, Jesus' hometown, Bethsaida and Gamla. That's where the zealots were. Nazareth is down here. You can't see it. My map, it cut off on the map. Uh, just north of Nazareth is that town Sephoris we went to. And then way up here at the top of the map is a town called Gishala. Now, the reason I bring this up is Gishala is a zealot stronghold. And it was second to Gamla, the zealot stronghold. In fact, there's a guy named John of Gishala, who was a zealot leader towards 66 AD. And he was right along with those people at Gamla. Why does this matter? Why does Gishala matter? Where are Paul's parents from? Yeah, probably Gashala, if I'm telling you about it, right? I wouldn't point out this city if there wasn't some connection. And we get it from Jerome, the ancient, uh, he, he, in the 4th, 5th century, they commissioned Jerome to write the Latin Vulgate, which became the, like the Bible for the Catholic Church. He took the Hebrew Old Testament and translated it into Latin. He wanted to do it from the Hebrew, not the Greek. So he lived in, he lived in uh, Israel. Well, it wasn't Israel then, but he, he lived in the land. And Jerome translated the Bible and then wrote a, a number of commentaries. And so I put the, I, on your notes, I put what's in there from one of his commentaries on Philemon. This is from the commentary in Philemon. Some say that the Apostle Paul's parents were from Geshala in Judea. Now, Judea, he just means the land of the Jews, not the province. And then when the province was devastated by the Romans because of an uprising, the Jews were scattered. Paul's parents went over to Tarsus and Cilicia. And Paul was born there. Some question is, did the parents emigrate there because their choice was? Or did the Romans kick them out? Now, I think they think that the Romans were trying to split the zealots up. We have this zealot movement, so we're going to take all these zealot people and put them in different areas. Kind of like the feds, when they, take, they, they capture a drug ring and they put one prisoner in like all 50 states so that they can't collude with each other. Some scholars think, well, maybe they were taken as like a, in slavery, in servitude to the, Roman, to the Romans. And then if you're a freed slave, you, become, you get citizenship. Yes. Just about the time of Jesus, yeah. There's, I'll show you in a minute. There's two. So the question was, um, how old was Paul then? Well, then scholars think he, he, he was probably around the age, Jesus' age. Somewhere around there, maybe a little bit younger than Jesus. But yes, I'll show you. There's two zealot uprisings in Geshala, and that when the Romans went in there to put them down, they took the people and spread them out. So Paul's parents, now if Paul's parents are from Geshala and they got moved by the Romans, tell me about Paul's parents. They might have been zealots. Now you grow up in a, in a household with two zealot parents. Again, you're not playing soccer, you're studying Torah 10 hours a day. You get sent to Jerusalem for boarding school with Gamaliel. They're not messing around with their kid. I mean, you're like, you know, these parents are intense towards God. So this is what Jerome says. Now, we don't know. We, we just know we have this comment from Jerome. The early Christian writers were very, they didn't want to go against Scripture because they would e easily get called a heretic. So, okay, let me finish. 
Okay, so next it says on your sheet, he inherited as a young man the personal status of his parents. Thus he could state, they are Hebrews, but so am I. They are Israelites, so am I. They are Abraham's seed, so am I. And again, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. These indicate that he felt himself more a Jew than a citizen of Tarsus. That's Jerome's comment on Paul. So Gishala is a zealot town. In 6 BC, there was an uprising. That was right after Herod the Great's death. That was put down. In 4 BC, there was another uprising, revolt. That's when Judas the Galilean was killed. Now, Paul might have been born right around 4 BC, which would make him uh, maybe about eight years younger than Jesus. Who knows when Jesus was actually born, but it's tough to date that one. So Judas the Galilean, both the zealot cities. So it was a zealot stronghold, and then that leads to that speculation. Is it possible that Paul's parents were zealots themselves? I just want to show you that one comment about Paul's parents, that they may have come from a zealot town. So, okay, we went long. We had our announcement at the beginning. So that was background of Paul and the Sea of Galilee, part 16. Hopefully that shows you a little bit about his, he knows the way he was thinking, radically changed by Jesus. That's what Jesus wants. Passionate people to go out and break down the barriers and bring about the kingdom of God.